Hello everybody and welcome back to What Would The Smart Party Do? This week, what will we do? Be lazy probably about our DMing, but we can get onto that in a minute. With me as usual is my good friend Baz. How are you doing Baz? Nice and relaxed? <laughs> I nearly couldn't be bothered to dial in. I'm that lazy. <laughs> well, as long as you're prepared for a special guest tonight, because uh, the very minimum we expect is some questions and some answers uh, from... Mike Shea. How are you doing, Mike? Good. How are you? Pleasure to be here. Yeah, living the dream. Also known as Sly Flourish on the Twitters. You're a man who's very often given advice on how to DM games, tips for D&D, and all that kind of stuff. Not strictly D&D necessarily per se. It could be any role-playing game, but I guess you're probably known for your, your, your two main books, I would say, the, the Lazy DM and Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master, which give people perhaps... Um, an insight in how to run games, I don't want to say properly, but probably better, more efficiently, with greater quality. How would you phrase it? Yeah, I certainly wouldn't say properly. Uh, but, <laughs> but yeah, efficiently is, is probably the best, the, the best way to, to describe it, I would say. So how, how did these books come about and your general ethos for, for cutting down on prep? Is it that you always found too much of your own time was getting spent and you, you just had to like do a bit of self-analysis or... We're just railing against what everybody else was doing and thought you'd teach them how to do it best. So it, it probably came about in uh, the middle of D&D 4th edition. I, was, I, was, I, I, I had played 2nd and 3rd edition of D&D, and when they switched over to 4th, many people switched off and went somewhere else, and then other people went in deep into 4th edition, and I was one of the ones that went deep into 4th edition. And uh, one thing about the 4th edition of D&D is that it was very heavily combat-focused, and it expected a battle map and miniatures and everything like that. So I dove into that pretty heavily, too. And uh, the style of the game, you, you really had to, like, build... Your, your game essentially was a bunch of linked combat encounters because they were so big and so long and so detailed that they were going to be the majority of the game you were running. And then you sort of had like the sinew of a story or, or you know, some choices around there. And I, you know, I played like that pretty, pretty happily, right, for a long time. And then we got the real high level play. And then I was a little less happy because it's really hard to run high level 4E, but it's kind of hard to run high level anything. Then it was right around the time when D&D Next came about, and I started to play some D&D Next games. Uh, I ran, I, I wrote some, some D&D Next, early D&D Next adventures, and I was lucky to have some uh, designers who have been writing RPGs for a long time and who were really in the, in the they were inside the, the, the design circle of what was going on with D&D Next at the time, who was able to kind of steer me in the right direction when it came to the adventures I was writing and be like, that's the way we used to do it in fourth edition. That's not how we do it now. And I was like, I don't even understand. Like, how, what do you mean you don't have like a linear dungeon? How do you have anything else, right? It, the, the philosophy kind of stuck with me. And I, I also started to talk to a lot of DMs and hear from a lot of DMs. And, and the, you know, same common problem that everybody has, which is I, I, I prepped all of this stuff and then my players went left and now I don't have anything, right? Like they, I totally didn't expect them to go the way they went. Or we, you know, set up very intricate scenes that the characters bypassed by flying right over them, right? And what occurred to me, like a common refrain that I heard over and over again uh, from both professionals and from DMs was uh, the less I prepared, the better it was, right? That the, the, the less I prepared, the better the game was. But it wasn't like to, to all the way to zero, right? It wasn't like you could just sit down there with nothing and off you go. But it really brought up the question of like, well, what do you actually need, 
right? What's what's critical to, to run a game? What what do you absolutely have to have? And what kind of things can you have that help you recognize the fact that the game is going to go in directions you don't expect and and help you prepare for that to happen, right? Which is kind of a tricky a tricky spot and not the typical way I certainly not the way that I had been prepping my adventures beforehand and uh, and a new way to do it now. So that that all kind of went into the original Lazy Dungeon Master, the first the first book, which I think was five or six years ago now, mm, something like that. Yeah. I'm trying to remember. It's right at the. It was during D and D Next, so fifth edition D and D wasn't out yet. So I was supposed to been out six or seven years ago. You know, so that one was like, how do you prep your game in 15 minutes, and how do you prep with like three three by five note cards, and it worked, and people liked it, and I did it for a while, and and it you know I, it was almost there, but it was like, yeah, that's I don't know if that's quite enough, like that. You know, you can kind of do it, but there's going to be a lot of big missing pieces if you do it that way. And then there was a couple of other things that I had picked up over over a couple of years after that. There, I was like, man, I'm not I'm I'm not doing it the same way I described in that book, and yet people are still buying the book. What does that mean, right? Like, <laughs> what kind of you know what kind of hypocrite am I? And one of the big ones was this idea called secrets and clues, which really hit you know to me. It was something I picked up from a video game. I picked it up from a game called Bloodborne. And Bloodborne had a really interesting way of telling stories by having hardly any story information in the beginning of the game or like from NPCs or anything like that. But every item you picked up had this like one line bit of history and you could slowly start to piece the history of what's going on by all of these items you pick up and all these like one line bits of lore. And I was like, that's such an interesting way to tell a story, right? It's such different. What if you could do that in D&D? Like what if you just had like a single line of information and maybe had a few of them maybe had say 10 of them and then during the game wherever the characters went whatever they picked up whatever they did whoever they talked to you could drop these these little nuggets in front of them that would tell them about the history or tell them about the story that's going on or tell them about the villain general information right and i started doing that and i had like a fourth three by five card that i threw in with my other three by five cards from the lazy dungeon master and i started doing that all the time and it worked really really well it meant like i didn't care where they went like they're going to learn the same stuff wherever they go and hmm. you know i have 10 things and i only ever really have to give up five of them right like i might not give up all 10 but 10 has been more than enough and it was a real great way to like feel prepared but also be ready for them to basically go wherever they wanted and and then i'm like well okay that's not in the book. What do I do? And I wrote like a blog article about it. I'm like, okay, that's something. But I'm like, I think I need to write another book. You know, and I'm like, but what if I write another one and they hate it? Or, you know, like the other one is selling. <laughs> like people like it. Like why would I do another one? And and are people going to get confused and be like, well, I'm no, I don't want to buy either. Like my, 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 you know, my, my worst, my worst case was I'm going to write this new book and no one's going to want it, right? But my worst, worst case is, I, I end up destroying both books, right? I put two out and now no one buys either. Luckily, it didn't turn out that way. I, I launched it. It was my third or fourth, third Kickstarter, I think. And it did very well. Um, I had a very modest price for it. And I had professional editing from a Wizards of the Coast veteran editor. And I had a survey of 6,000 DMs that I ran that helped give me information on how people ran their games. And I spent, I took a month off from work to go write it. Like I, I just went to a coffee shop and wrote it, you know, for an entire month. And so I really put a lot more energy and effort and time and money into developing that book way more than the original Lazy Dungeon Master, which is kind of a fluke. Like I didn't know anybody's going to care. 
And that worked out really well. And now that book is way more popular than the original book is, which is good because every so often I'll see a tweet where people are like, oh, I love the Lazy Dungeon Master. And they show the old one. And I'm like, ooh, like, <laughs> go get the new one, right? Like, and it's like the old it's one's not bad. <laughs> a little bit, right? Like, the old one's not bad. I actually did a reprint of it, right? I, I, I created a new format for it so you can get a, you know, you can get a print on demand because the print on demand place that was used to do it wasn't, you know, wasn't doing it anymore. So I know people still want it, and it's still a good book, and people like it, and it's useful. I'm like, who the hell am I to say don't get it, right? Like, please, go ahead. But I do feel like the new book has a lot more going on. You don't need either book to enjoy the other. But the new book is the new book, right? And it's, it's definitely going to have more <laughs> stuff in it. So, yeah. Multiple editions can be tricky, right? It really is, yeah. And, and you know, now I'm doing it again, right? I'm working on another thing that's not, it's not exactly a sequel, but it's a, another lazy DM book, but with a different angle. So... We'll see. We'll see how that goes, right? Amazing, mate. We have to circle back to one of the first things you said there. Uh, thank you for that. Fourth yeah. edition D and D. Yeah, I th- I th- I, I'm one of the big fans of it too. Mm-hmm. Okay. Always was. I I think we probably bounced around on the same forums and on Twitter at the time. <laughs> yeah. It was it was a bit of a hellscape in social media before well, he landed it was, for a long time afterwards. Say, like, I don't know about a hellscape. Like it was so much smaller and like you knew everybody, right? It was, yeah. it was a pretty tight knit yeah. group. I have a lot of friends now that I met as bloggers and Twitter people, you know, my friend mm-hmm. Enrique, the newbie DM and Teo Sabadia, alpha stream. Like we all still chat today and we were all kind of four E bloggers back then. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I recall it really well. How does it feel to be vindicated all this time later? Because I don't know what it's like in the US, but in the UK, people are going nuts for 4E for some reason. I don't know how that's happened. Benefit of hindsight, just enough time away. But it's getting a lot of love, which it didn't always get So at the here's time. the weird bit. Like, I loved 4E, but I love 5E way more. <laughs> so, oh. so, like, I look, it's funny to me, and I'm, I'm a little, I guess a little grognardy about it, because... I see this new resurgence of love for 4E and sometimes the things that they love, I'm like, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And sometimes the things that they love, I'm like, that never worked. So like skill challenges, people, you know, talk about skill challenges and like, oh, this is this great way of kind of collapsing the mechanics of, of attribute checks into this like longer thing. And I'm like, I never ran a good skill challenge in four years of 4E. Like you go read them in the Dungeon Master's Guide in the fourth edition Dungeon Master's Guide. They're a mess, right? And like they're, they're the opposite of like what I'm talking about. You cannot improvise a skill challenge. Like, and they don't work because, you know, the, what I was bringing up where like you'd set up a big thing and then people fly over it. Like that's what happened. You set up a skill challenge of like a bunch of people riding on a raft down a river and then someone's like oh i you know i fly or you know we, we teleport down the river i'm not gonna have to go down a raft and they're like well but i set up this whole skill challenge so so yeah there's like there's things that so the hard part is like i'm like where was all this love when i was there right like, yeah. <laughs> like i was back yeah. there playing and we we went to I, I i was listening to another to another show and they were saying like that they went to gen con and uh yeah, it was uh, Professor Dungeon Master on the um, Dungeon Craft uh, YouTube channel. And he was saying, like, there, <laughs> he went to one year, he went to Gen Con, and the entire, they had this, like, I think they called it the Sagamore Ballroom, but this huge ballroom with, like, hundreds of tables. And it was all D&D and all 4th edition D&D, early days of 4th edition. And he said, then I missed a year, and I came back, and they're in a broom closet, and all of it is Pathfinder, <laughs> right? And he's like, that, yeah, you know, like, and I was there. I was there both. I was actually there in the middle of the year, too, right? But I'm like, I remember that. And I remember, like, being stuck in the broom closet. And I'm like, I just want to play my D&D. And, like, you know, man. So... Yeah, it's hard not to be like, where where were all you people? And then the other one is, I think there's a lot of rose-colored glasses about mm. 4E. 
And there are parts of it I'm more than happy to like let go of, right? And like I'm, I'm happier with the way I'm running DD. I've changed a lot as a DM in the last 10 years or so. And I'm happier the way I'm running it now than I was back then. And there's certain things I would be happy to not have come back, like heavy focus on gridded combat, super, you know, super complicated monsters with lots of different things that you had to remember and always forgot. And, you know, that that kind of that kind of thing. So I don't know. I'm I'm torn. But then there's a lot of stuff about 4E that I still love. You know, like the minion rules for 4E were pretty good, except they sure got wiped out really quick. So yeah, lots of things. I don't know. It's hard for me not to be like, yeah, but on everything that everybody brings up. It's a great thing about 4E. <laughs> I am glad to see like Matt Colville is one who really loves 4E, remember, you know, played 4E, loves it, and is talking a lot about it. And now at least he is running it. So like, you know, it's one thing to talk about loving 4E and it's something else to like go get the books and play it again. Yeah, you know, yeah. and we'll see how that goes, right? I'm like, I was talking, uh, I was talking with James Intercasso, who who works for for MCDM, the company that Matt Colville put together, and and James is like, yeah, he's running it. I'm like, how's it going? He's like, well, we're gonna see. It might be a lot of house rules, and I'm like, yeah, I bet, right? Like, there's there's a lot of things that have to change, so yeah. It's like the things they do at the debates, isn't it? Where they ask the audience the, at the start, and then they have all the debates, and then they ask them again at the end to see what they bring is and and who shifted. There could be a different opinion at the end than the start, but. So um, let's let's dig into your book if you don't mind doing sure. that. The, the new one, obviously, Return of the Legend of Mass, not not the old book. We can right. have edition was about that later, <laughs> but um, I think it's, it's it's really just from the start. It's very clear. You do like a kind of like who's this for? What's it about? Why why does it exist? Um, like how to use the book? Yeah, I, th- I think that just that gives the approach, which then sets you up for how you should DM. I go well, not should. But like a recommended way of yeah, doing like here, to, here's a, like, here's an approach, right? Like I like to think yeah. of it as here's an approach, and yeah. But it's all based around like what what are you doing? Like what's what's our mission statement? What's the goal? What we're trying to do? Right. And then let's start talking about what that is. Now we've established what it is we're trying to achieve, which I think is a really good one. But. Yeah, yeah. One of the one of the funny things that comes back is every so often I'll see like a comment on a blog that reviewed it or something like that, and or a comment on a, a YouTube channel, and they'll say like I'm too lazy to read a book, and I'm like if you look at the first pages, it says if you're too lazy to read the book, here's what to do, right? Like you know, it doesn't expect that you'll sit down and read the whole book. Like I I didn't expect you'd sit down. I know we're all busy. So here's like how to get the highest impact out of this book for the least amount of the least amount of work. You know, like. I, I want to take the same philosophy we're taking for a game and also apply it to how you approach this book. And that's really clever, isn't it? Because, I mean, you know, thank you for doing that as well because I haven't got the time to read 300-page books for anything <laughs> anymore. And this comes in at, what, under 100 pages and each of it's very, very bite-sized. Everything's very digestible. Like each piece, you do a really good job of summarizing it at the top, summarizing it at the end, there's a little checklist. So, you know, you really stick with that. This really is for lazy people. Honestly, this is you're not going to have to do this as prep for your prep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> when, yeah. Once it's in, you're away with worksheets and all the rest of it. So there's a, the format and the design factor, even in, in what's an advice book, I think is really well done. Yeah, and, and like it, the funny thing is, it's not. I mean, like the lazy the lazy approach, sir, is sticky and it and it works and the branding works and I'm sure not going to get rid of it at this point. But it's really for busy people. Right. It's like we're all very busy. We got a lot of things going on in our lives. And, and, and a lot of us you know, that are adults with with full lives don't have a lot of time to like prep a game. Right. And we want to run a game. And it's really I think, you know, I really think playing games is important, like a major important part of our lives. But like, you know, scraping away a couple of hours a week to prep a game could be too much for people. So it's like, well, how do you you know, how do you really get it where you can focus it down to the least amount that you need to do? Um, mm. So, yeah, that's that's definitely an important, an important idea. 
Right, so we've got steps then, haven't we? Yep. So it's a, like a nice Gamers Anonymous kind <laughs> <Right>. of... <laughs> How many steps have we got here? Is that eight, eight. ten steps? Yeah, it's eight steps. Eight steps. Yep. Yep. Eight steps, but really, if you want to be super lazy, there's three steps. And if you want to be really, really lazy, yeah. there's one step. Yeah, so, right, and that's actually... <laughs> right, so so part of it is like there are, there are eight steps in like the complete the complete checklist, right? And then... Advanced lazy. Yeah, and then depending on what kind of game you're running and what other material you have, you may not need eight, right? You may only need two mm. or three uh, there's there's probably a couple of steps. I, I I wrote a blog article about this. Is like depending on are you running a continuous game? Are you running a one shot game? Are you running from a published adventure? Are you running for your own homebrew? You know your own homebrew adventure. Is it a published setting or is it your own setting? And like you know probably the hardest thing to do is a one shot game that's your own adventure in your own setting, right? And if you're if you're doing all that, you got nothing, right? You have no there's no game behind you that you already ran that you can build off of. You're you're doing your own world. You're doing your own adventure, and you got to have a complete story in one session. Like that's, you know, that's a lot of work. And in that case, you probably want to have the eight steps, right? And like, I actually ran one of those. It, it I, you know, it it was in a published campaign world, which is Eberron. But I ran a one shot game for some friends on Saturday, and I I, I tried to like thoughtfully approach how I was going to prep the game, and actually recorded it on Twitch and, and YouTube. And it took two hours, right? It ended up, you know, between all the chatter of me talking about it on Twitch and prepping the game was like two good hours of, of prep, but it was everything, right? Like I had to have all aspects. I needed maps and annotated maps and monsters and storylines and lore and all the things that I had to like funnel in to run like this big one-shot game. So so that's kind of like an extreme example. But in other cases, like if you're running a, 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 if you're running a published adventure, you're in the middle of the series... And you you feel like you've got everything, you know, you might only need a couple of steps. So where do we start then, Mike? What's step one? Step one is review the characters, right? The very first thing you want to do is look at who is in your game. Who are the characters in the game? What are their backgrounds? What are they interested in? What's happened to them? Uh, you know, what connections do they have with the rest of the world? And I really, I really think that it's important that the characters uh, be first and foremost in your mind while you're preparing everything else. I think that if you, you know, I think if you dive too deep into your story without considering the characters, you're, you're, there's going to be a disconnect there. So I, you know, I, I really, and, and, you know, if you think about it, it's like, who are the most important characters in the game, right? I, you know, and it's the player characters, right? It's the ones that are actually have a human being on the other side. They're, they're going to matter what your NPCs don't care what you do to them, right? But the players sure care about what happens to the characters. So, yeah, I think the first thing, if you can, and again, like if you're in a one-shot game, you might not know who the characters are. So, mm. you know, it can be really tricky. This was a, this, this chapter was a revelation to me because I'm going to be one of those guys. There's always one of those guys who says, Mike, I've been running games for 40 years. I, I, <laughs> I don't need to review the characters. What are you talking about? I just get straight on with my next next part of my campaign. And then <laughs> genuinely, I remember the first time I read that, I thought, let me see if I can just mentally run down the names yeah. of the characters in my campaign. I got stuck. Yeah. I couldn't remember the last one. Mm-hmm. And that happens more often than I know. And maybe that's just my age. I don't know. But it's it's incredible how that little mental recap just brings everything back into focus. Yep. And you start scrubbing out scenes you had planned because you think, that's not going to no land yeah. with these guys yeah. at all. Yeah, that, that is an, it's an exercise that I really love doing. I like to think a lot about my games, like if I'm on a walk or something like that. And a real easy step is just name all the characters, right? Like you, mm. you've got a game coming up. Who are all the characters? Can you remember all their names? And if you remember their names, you're probably going to remember the rest of them. In fact, you probably rem- remember the other detail. The name might be actually the hard part, right? Mm. 
But if you can at least go down their name and sort of do a mental checklist, it just starts to wire things in. And then you're like, oh, yeah, I was going to have this NPC. But what if that NPC was a relation with one of the characters? Like, what if that was, a, you know, an old family member? Or what if it's an assassin that's been hunting them down because of something they did before? Like, how can you sort of take all of these other components that are in the game and just start to draw them and connect them to the characters? You know, so to me, like doing that first means that everything else, your strong start and your secrets and clues, the scenes, all the NPCs, everything else that can all sort of, you know, not not everything has to. But you can sort of like keep them in mind. And then when there's a good opportunity, you can say, oh, there's a good hook for something that can matter for the characters. Yeah, I write quite a lot of my own stuff, to it, like more often than not, I'll write my own scenarios mm-hmm. uh, for things and do a lot of one shots and stuff. And as you're saying, it can, that can mean more preps involved, but like I, I frequently start with the characters. Mm-hmm. And if you get the characters and what they're doing and what, what might they be doing and what would they be interested in, that then informs all the rest of the stuff going on. So it's right. I think as, when it comes to campaigns then and stuff like that, like always bring it back to your characters. Yeah. And why would they care about what's going on? Like, you know. Yeah. yeah. I think some GMs get a little bit carried away with, their great demon or whatever, or yeah, team right, up doing X, Y, and Z that's like nothing to do. It's not even on the same continent where the characters yeah, are. Like, yeah. you know, what what do you immediately need to prep that's player facing that the players are going to get their hands on straight away? Because if you're not doing that, you're preparing for something that's not going to happen yet. Right, and that that's something that you know that's that's kind of another philosophy that's in this this book pretty heavily, which is like, you know, prep for your next session. Right, like you, you've got a game coming. Like I've got a game coming up on Wednesday. Should I be thinking three sessions out? Not really. Like maybe I need to like have just enough to know where they might go the next week, but I don't really – the main thing is like making sure we're having a fun game this coming Wednesday, right? And what's that going to mean? And there, there are plenty of – there. you know, I've in the campaign I'm running now, I'm like, I, you know, I'm running a published campaign setting, so I'm talking to other people that are running the same campaign setting. And they, we're all like, yeah, I don't know how we're going to do with that. I'm like, I don't know. I'll figure it out then, right? Like it doesn't even matter. You know, meteors get hit the planet between now and then, so why would I waste my time thinking about – you know what's going to happen like i'll worry about wednesday's likely and so i'll i'll focus on wednesday so yeah which takes you to strong starts so strong starts is your next big step and uh, that's one that um that i think I, I guess most people if they had to write down what do you need in a in a good session i think a lot of people would scribble that down mm-hmm. but uh you go to the trouble of explaining your way on, on that one a little bit more so what do you count as a strong start is a fight with goblins good enough yep yeah fight with goblins is great and um you know so the easy way is drop in a combat uh, it's not mm. you don't want to do it all the time, you know, but it's not a bad it's not a terrible way to start. Right? Usually it's like what happens like what's happening. It's the only time that the DM has control over a game, right, is the first scene. It's the only time that you can actually say what is going to happen because nothing else has happened yet. And so what you know, what happens? So like it could be I, I you know, a game I ran on Saturday was I wanted it was a one shot game. And I'm like, wouldn't it be cool if I started at the end of their last adventure? Right. So I said, like, they're in a boss fight. So we started off in a boss fight. Very first thing, rolling initiative. They had no idea where they were. They had no idea who they were fighting. They had no idea why they were there. And as they were taking turns in initiative, I was explaining it to them. They, they were hearing about who they were fighting and why they were there and what they had to do. And the players were in it. They're just like, yep, that's why we're here. Like, I remember being put on this quest to go kill this cult leader to get this circlet. Right. And they just bought in. And it was a very James Bond kind of intro. Uh, in another game, I was like, I don't want to start with a fight because I don't want to spend 45 minutes of the whole session here. I want them to move forward. But I'm like, what if they like are in the icy north and they see a Remoraz pop out of the ground and send a spew of lava in the middle of an ice field and then dive back into the ice and then a small avalanche and everybody, even the people that they're hunting are worried about it too. We'll just have this thing kind of happen and it just sort of shakes the world up. It sort of 
you know, gets the gets the players on their toes, gets the characters on their toes. They're like, wow, that was really weird. And then they go on with the adventure from there. So it could be a parade, right? It could be a party. Uh, in in I wrote a book called uh, Ruins of the Grendel Root, which is uh, 10, 10 adventures, 10 uh, tier one adventures for D&D. And they all kind of start with an event. And many times the events are like, hey, it's silly hat day, you know, silly hat day in the enclave. And, you know, what silly hat are you wearing, right? And here's a silly hat generator so to help you generate your silly hat. And, you know, it doesn't have to be a fight, but it's like, oh, okay, this is different, right? This is something that's happening. And so for the rest of the game, they're all wearing their silly hats when they go on their adventures. Um, so, yeah, the, but the idea is, like, you just want something to happen, something to, to draw the players out of the real world and into the fantasy world, you know, that, that, that brings them into the game. But an easy way is you're attacked by goblins. Like, that's, a, that's <laughs> an easy and a fine way to go. Yeah, in media res is, is a, yep. what people immediately think when you say like a, sure. an exciting start to a That's what people think, yep. of, isn't it? Yep. But yeah, yep. even if it's classic, you're meeting in a tavern to get admission off some old guy. Like there can be a beer festival going on in a tavern. Like, yeah, right. Just right. something should be happening to make it more than just sure. generic. You know, yep. get a bit of interest going. Yeah. Okay, fabulous. So yeah, I think your next step, Mike, is the one where uh, this is the one that I struggle with. It's uh, outlining potential scenes. Mm-hmm. Um, and that can be that can be tricky. That's where you can start to draw a blank because now you are having to predict the future a little bit, and that can be tough, right? So, uh, so how do you handle these potential scenes? Because surely anything could happen. Sure. So, like one of the things there is, I, I think the, the the name of the step, if I recall, is like describe the scenes that may happen, right? Mm-hmm. And so we're putting some probability in there that they may not, and it's mm-hmm. it's mostly there just to have a rough outline of what you think might happen. Just so you feel good. It's really a step that's just trying to make you feel good more than anything else, right? It's not you, – you may not pay any attention to it at all when you're actually running your game. It's just something to give you an idea like what are the, what are the edges of this box that I might be in? And it, it should be the, about the fastest step of, of the eight, I think, because it's probably the one that serves you the least except to make you feel good. <laughs> but you know, it was it was actually one of the last steps that I put in. It was one of the I you know I think I had written almost the entire rest of the book before I put that in. But I was like, you know, the thing is like, people do it right. Like in the surveys and everything, people outline they want to have something. The reality is they may go in a totally different direction, and it shouldn't shouldn't bother with it. But but you know, but sometimes it just helps you get an idea of like, okay, where do I think things are going to go, right? And then and it's really just a bullet list. And two or three words. It's not paragraphs of text, right? It's not five on the five page outline. It's really just here, you know, here's just a short list of like the kind of scenes that I think might happen in this in this session. And and yeah, and an example of like where you, if you're pretty sure that you that you don't know where the things are gonna go, one of those bullets could be like they invade the Duragar outpost, right? And it's like, I don't know how they're gonna invade the outpost. I don't know what direction they're going. I don't know how they're gonna I think they're probably gonna face the boss sometime, but I don't know when or how. So I'll put and, you know, invade the Duergar outpost and then face off against the uh, the Duergar boss, right? And that's it, right? That's just just enough for me to be like, okay, I have an idea. It also gives you an idea of the scope of of how likely you think you are to be able to hit certain certain scenes, given the time that you've got. And it's it's not uncommon for me to have like seven or eight scenes and know that like four of these are for this game and probably three of those are for the next game, you know. Mm-hmm. And then I'll worry about that again when I do my prep for the next game. And you can recycle these things. Yeah, no no, but nothing is sacrosanct, right? Like nothing, nothing is real until the characters see it, right? Nothing, everything we put here is totally ethereal until the characters put their eyes on it. And when the characters witness it, then it becomes something that you now have to hang on to and do something with. But yeah, you know, when we talk about secrets, which I think you're next, you know, like 
Mm. Those are, you know, they, they're not true until they are, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, so, it's, sorry, it sounds very similar to, um, like, Blades in the Dark has this concept that you have an ideas cloud. So you might have something like a guard dog attacking people across a courtyard and various other things, but they're just there in, like, the cloud waiting. Yeah. And it's only as dice results um, predict or there's complications occur that you pick one of those ideas and, and like you say, something crystallizes and becomes a real thing. But, yeah, I think that's... Um, it's more thinking about like events rather than locations and that kind of stuff, isn't it? Or like, what's a cool thing that will happen? Mm-hmm. Not necessarily at this castle in this courtyard. Here's what happens if they actually go there or not. It's yeah, more kind it's, of like it's, right. here's cool stuff as a bag of tricks, and we'll yeah. we'll throw them out as it seems dramatically appropriate. Or... I really, yeah, I really like that idea of like the idea cloud because that's really what it is. I mean, Blades in the Dark has so many cool ideas. It also has like the progression clocks and things like that that I think work way better than a skill challenge. Speaking of skill challenge, if you want a skill challenge that works, <laughs> check out Blades the 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 the, the you know, check out the clocks from Blades in the Dark um, because they work really well. So, yeah, and, and that's that's really like what you don't want to have is a big flow chart, right? You don't want to have this like giant nested tree of like all the different paths they could take and all the things like now you're just working too hard. Right. And instead, it's just like just throw jot some ideas down and move on. Right. Like just have enough that you feel OK about it, which is really what all this is about. Like, do I have enough material mm-hmm. to feel like I'm, I'm ready to run the game or mostly ready to run the game? You'll never, never have everything. Cool. So then the the it, it, I don't know. Hope you mind me calling it this, but the backbone yep. of the the lazy DM approach for me yeah. is the secrets and clues, which you've already talked about a little bit. And it's they're essentially like I, in, in other game systems, like Call of Cthulhu, you might call them floating clues, I guess, sure. or or just secrets. But they're they're kind of quantum clues, aren't they? They're just the bits of the the bits of the game that you need to get out onto the table at some point. But you're not going to tie yourself into having it in a certain location or in a certain diary or in the head of an NPC. It could be all of those things, or it could be inscribed in the in the head of a hammer. But the secrets and clues bit—that's kind of like your adventure, isn't it? In a nutshell. Yeah, you you, you just hit two descriptors of secrets and clues that I wish I had I had had, right? Like <laughs> it, it being the backbone of the lazy dungeon master is, is true, right? That's that's I really it, like I said it's the reason I wrote the new book. I don't know if I would have written it otherwise. And uh, yeah, and that idea that they're 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 quantum state, right? They're they're quantum clues. They're real, and you know, they're only real, you know, they're only real when you actually put them in front of somebody. But yeah, the the idea of a secret and clue is that they're short, right? They're like one or two sentences long. You don't put a lot of you know text into them. Uh, they are they they matter, like they matter to the characters. They're 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 character focused. These are things that they would want to know about, even if it's like ancient history it's still ancient history that they might want to know about that the players are go oh that's interesting right and uh and you don't define where they're going to find them so that they they you you don't you know even in your back of your head you might have an idea like oh i bet you they're going to learn this from this npc but you don't really define the clue by how they're going to discover it instead it, they're 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 you know they're they're abstracted from their location of discovery so that you can drop them in wherever they go and and I think it is like yeah you mentioned Call of Cthulhu I didn't know I didn't know Call of Cthulhu had that idea but it makes perfect sense that like in a mystery kind of game, you know mysteries are really hard to run in D anD D because you don't know what path they're going to take to solve the mystery. Like mystery novels are great because you're in control of both the protagonist and the mystery and the clues and everything. You control it all, so you know exactly how to have the things get revealed. But when the players are involved, you have no idea what they're going to go after. So a, a mystery can work if all of the clues that you need to solve the mystery are, are disassociated from how they might discover them. And then like, you know, hey, I found this newspaper. Oh, look, it turns out that this has this clue that leads you to the next step, right? 
Um, so yeah, and it's it's probably you know where I said like scenes you just sort of whip out and and, and move on as fast as you can. Secrets are probably the hardest part. Like they you know they they're really valuable, but it's pretty easy to get stuck on them. You know it's pretty pretty easy to 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 especially like it's usually easy to come up with three or four without a problem and then five six and seven are like yeah okay I can do those and then like the last three are like staring at the ceiling for twenty minutes, right? And one one trick that I've that I found. Uh, that had helps is thinking about the kinds of secrets, like what, you know, what kinds of secrets could you have? And it's like, you could have character background secrets. You could have secrets about NPCs, secrets about locations, secrets about uh, the, the storyline or the plots, uh, historical secrets, um, you know, and so on. And so if you think about what kinds of, if you make a list of like the kinds of secrets that exist, you can sort of review that one and say, okay, are there any historical secrets I want to drop in? Are there any secrets about the villain that I want to drop in? Anything about the characters? And you could sort of make that another checklist that helps you generate secrets, right? And I think I think that 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 has helped me sort of you know shock my brain into activity when I when I'm getting stuck trying to think up those last three secrets. Uh, but yeah, I found them tremendously valuable. I found them I found them valuable for years before I wrote Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master. And one thing that I feel pretty good about now is that. Uh, I have not changed my prep style since writing Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master, which is now about four years old or so. And unlike, at least, yeah, yeah, unlo- at least. I, I don't even know. Yeah, I don't remember when I wrote. But um, unlike re- the original, where I changed my style after I wrote it, you know, within like a year <laughs> or so, uh, I have, you know, I've been using now the, the 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 checklist from Return myself. I'm eating my own dog food, and it tastes great. Right. It works. It works really well. So that's nice. Like I'm not saying and, and you know, I'm by, by no means am I saying like, it's the way everybody should prep. Uh, one thing, one reason I think it's it's a, is been as successful as it has is because it's a life preserver in an ocean. Right. Like n- nobody really knows how to prep and, and there's no real good great guides for it. Like the Dungeon Master's Guide isn't great at telling you what you should spend your attention. The Dungeon Master's Guide is like, hey, let's talk about pantheons. Right. It's the very first chapter. Yeah. You're like. How is it, you know, come on. And I will say, like, at least the previous Dungeon Masters guides are like, hey, you got a game coming up. Let's talk about your game, right? So I feel like Return does well because it's like, hey, here's one method, right? Here's one style. And it's modular. It's flexible. You can pick what you like. You can throw away what you don't. You can add other steps in. You can do whatever you want. And and I think that works for people. It works for me, and it, it works for a lot of people that I talk to. So that, that I'm, I'm, I'm glad, right? I'm happy that it worked out that way. Cool. Yeah, I think, um, I think some other people could get more of it. Like I said, it is a little bit clickbaity calling it like the lazy dungeon yeah. guide and stuff. But, sure. but there's some guys and you see it all the time on Twitter and stuff. They're like, but I have to prepare. I have to spend hours prepared. I don't feel safe. You know, like I don't feel I can run it. But I think yeah. if people pick up the book, they'll find there is stuff in there they can use that will help them. Oh, yeah. You know, this, this is not a book saying you have to throw all your prep away and just run right. the CCU pants and just like suddenly you've got to improv everything. That's not kind of where we're heading with this. Yeah, and I'll, and I'll make a I'll make a controversial point. Like so, so I I I played exclusively in person for years, and then COVID hit, and I went from exclusively in person to exclusively online in one week. And now I've played about a year and a half online, and I've played you know hundreds of games online. And I'll tell you, like, one area where people are spending a tremendous amount of time and it doesn't sound like good time, like it, like it doesn't sound like they're having fun or that it's having a major impact is, is setting up all of their online stuff. And, yeah, and particularly, the like, yeah. the amount of time it takes to set up an adventure in, in Roll20 is pretty yeah. significant. And, you know, I, I, if, if people enjoy doing it and their players are happy with it, 
you know, and, and everything's going fine, then, then that's cool. But like, I know people, friends of mine who are stressed out from the fact that like now my friends demand, and, and it's like, you, you need to have an adult conversation with your players. Right. But they're like, they demand the lighting effects, right? I have to throw a map in and draw a polygon around every single object in here to make sure that the lighting works right. Like, oh my God. Like, does it really matter? Like in the, in the, in the grand sense of your story, is that what we're all going to remember in 10 years? You yeah. know, or are we just spending a lot of time on details? So, yeah. So, I, you know, and I'm not bashing it. Like, God, you know, Roll20 is doing fantastic. People absolutely love it. But boy, there's a lot of time being spent on that. It's a trap. <laughs> I, think a it's a, trap. I think it's a, yeah. And there's lots of, there are traps I'm heavily involved in. I've got piles of miniatures and, you know, army, you know, giant boxes full of Dwarven Forge terrain that I, that I spend. So, you know. Yeah, so like, come on, Mike, fess up. I know, it's right. Like, back, like, in, back in the fourth edition days, right? I, we didn't have foundry, so you didn't have to worry about like the crackling of the torch as your token goes <laughs> near to it. Right. But I did have to worry about buying random boosters of Watsy Minis yeah. to try and figure out well, how on earth I was going to get that <laughs> right. Dwergar boss. Right. And then I had to have the right dungeon tiles, and I bought all of it. Yeah. And then I had to to carry it around to my pal's house where we were going to play games that night. Right. And then we just ended up writing on a piece of paper yeah, with a sharpie. Right, right. And it was fine. I just, I just, <laughs> I just shot a video about how the best, the, the best things you can do to improve your game cost, cost nothing at all. Right. Mm-hmm. And in the meantime, I'm going to have a shipment of Dwarven Forge sent to my house that costs four <laughs> times more than my first car. <laughs> you know? So like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm on all sides, right? Like, <laughs> you know, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm, it can be crazy. So next up is fantastic locations. So somewhere for all of this cool stuff to happen, you got to have these kind of things in mind. Uh, fantastic locations shouldn't be hard to do in a D and D framework, right? Hopefully not. You'd be surprised though. Like sometimes people come up with some pretty mundane locations for a fantasy game. <laughs> right. You know, big Tavins. warehouses. Yeah, warehouses full of crates. Rooms. Right. <laughs> yeah. There's a there's a published adventure. Um, I'll 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 pick on it. Um, uh, Horde or not Horde of the Dragon Queen. Uh, what is it? Uh, uh, Waterdeep Dragon Heist. And Ooh. Waterdeep Dragon Heist has a fight with a bunch of Kenku in a warehouse full of crates and barrels. And you're like, seriously? Like a, a warehouse with crates and barrels in it? Like, So I'm like, put a big Dracolich statue in there, right? Like, put a big hanging Dracolich skeleton from the ceiling. And now you got a fantastic location, right? Like, put something there that's interesting, right? Yeah. I- I'm fine with a warehouse full of crates if the crates are all full of basilisks. Yeah, sure. Right? Yeah, exactly. Do something. Something fun. <laughs> so is this just brainstorming then just uh just turning it up a little bit in your head and uh, figuring out some stuff and sticking them on post-it notes and index cards sure yeah so yeah for fantastic locations like you know you, you probably you, i like to think of them as the set the set to a play right if you have a scene in a play what's the set that sits behind it and what are the features of that set that that tell you where you are and and, and hopefully give you something interesting to think about but also maybe to do stuff with and so in the book, I describe it as like have an evocative name, like the Bridge of Bones or the, you know, the Dragon Skull statue or something. Give it a, give it a kind of a nice evocative name and then think of three aspects, which I stole directly from fate. Right. Um, think what are three interesting aspects about this location? Like, you know, there's a deep well in the center of it. There's a, you know, a crackling storm cloud up above and I don't know, something else. Right. And um, lately I've gotten even lazier uh, where now I just do the evocative name. Like I, I you know, I'll, I'll, I'll add the aspects if, if it's, if it, if I know something's important or I know I'm going to need those things. Um, but a lot of times I'll just, you know, I'll come up with those on the fly if, and I can do it from whatever the name of the evocative location is. 
Uh, but yeah, the main thing is just make it, you know, there's a reason why it's called fantastic location. Like make it something really interesting. We have an unlimited budget, right? You can, you can do anything you want. (laughs) So don't fill it with a bunch of crates, right? Like put, put interesting things there. Uh, and then all of those little details can be, uh, vehicles for secrets, right? They can learn stuff from them. Like what, what's the, the weird glyphs that are etched into the dragon skull, what are those glyphs and what do they say? And then, you know, the wizard goes over and explores them and learns a secret, right? So, um, yeah, so they're, 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 they're interesting. They're useful. I really like doing them. Um, and I try to come up with about one for every 45 minutes of gameplay, right? I, that, that generally, that equation kind of, kind of works, right? Some scenes will be shorter, some will be longer, but, you know, it, it, it usually hits the mark pretty well. And it doesn't take a whole lot to come up with, with a lot. So you don't want, to, you know... Unless you're playing a long game, you don't want 10 of them, you know, but usually, you know, four or five will do. Yeah, I think that's something from Fate that, like a big thing about Fate that people go about is, oh, you've got these aspects and they're great. It's like, okay, well, we can just take that bit without the rest of the game. <laughs> just yeah, like, right. just give things aspects. Like you don't need to have the system right. supported, but yeah. Yeah, and it's really cool when you put aspects to a location and maybe it's in a fight and then... You, you, you mark them so that, you know, maybe throw them on a three by five card or, or write them in text if you're online or something like that so that the players see them and they say, oh, I want to do something with that. Can I tip that statue over? Right. Like I can go kill a skeleton, yeah. but there's two of them. Can I tip a statue over and crush a couple of skeletons? And you're like, let's give it a shot. Right. And now you have a more kind of action oriented, fun, fun game. Right. So, yeah, I think I think I think all those that works pretty well. Something that, uh, that I find particularly difficult with fantastic locations, what kills it, we were talking before about virtual tabletops. Planning your virtual tabletop sessions and trying to put your fantastic locations on a map. There's a feeling that you have to have a map on show all the time and it has to have a grid on it and it has to be this, that and the other. Um, and I mean, you know, Google image search is a wonderful thing and there are people making some really lovely stuff out there and, you know, and there's, there's plenty of Patreon accounts that will knock up some fantastic locations for you, literally fantastic locations, but it won't have that statue of the Drakenlich unless you can just do that with your brain and do that with your mind. Yeah. Uh, and, and I find that that's where VTTs can get a little bit stifling for this kind of preparation tool. Yeah, no, I agree. And, and I think like, there's a few ways to sort of think about a VTT that that idea of like does every scene need a grid, you know? Mm. I, I'm not I'm not going to tell anybody how to play their game, but you might you might consider that that doesn't have to be the case, right? You might try it where you only need that when you have a really big detailed fight. And the other thing, and I've seen people do it, is like they do find that image of a dragon statue, but it's not a map, and they just put the image up, and then you can still put tokens and stuff to show general representation of the characters and their yeah. distance to one another, but it doesn't have to be this top-view map. It's just we know what the background looks like, and we have our little tokens, and treat it like a Final Fantasy battle where mm-hmm. you know you have sort of the background and then the little tokens moving closer to one another. Um, I've, I've become a fan of like a, what I call a text-based battle map where I describe it in text. I use markdown text, which renders well in, in Discord, and I will name the locations and treat them like a zone and then have the names of the monsters and the names of the characters underneath those location names. And you could have like two or three location names with the areas in between. And it can still show that general representation of who is where and what's nearby and, you know, what monsters are where. Uh, you can use like the fate style zones of like, do I want to, you know, if I throw a fireball, who can I hit? I'm like, well, which zone do you want to throw it into? I want to throw it by the dragon statue zone. You go, there are three skeletons there. You can hit all three, right? And it's it's just enough to give people a visual representation of where they are uh, without having to have a full grid, 
right? And, and you can improvise that. You can sort of type it out really quickly in text chat and, and be done. So, um, yeah, I think even if, even if people are playing with a heavily gridded system, having some things in your back pocket to be able to improvise a scene uh, on top of your very detailed setups can A, save you a lot of time and B, give you a lot of flexibility. I think it's, those VTT maps are good for reverse engineering as well. So if you want to do more theater of the mind, it is worth doing that image search, finding some fantastical maps as, as Baz has alluded to, and then just looking at what's on the map and then writing that down as four bullet points or whatever it is. Yeah. Oh, yeah, there's a, there's a lava pit. There's this, you know, you can just like, you can use them for inspiration to give you your HTML right. text or whatever to yeah. then use, you know, on a text-based system. So it's it's worth having a look, but don't feel like you have to use the map that you found. Just use the ideas of it. Yeah, my, my friend, my friend Dave Chalker, uh, Dave the Game, who runs the site Critical Hits and was a big blogger in the in the 4E days. Now he's a game designer, does a bunch of different things. And he was like, yeah, if you're doing, you know, one thing you can do for your prep is start with your maps, right? Like find a bunch of maps. You can see what the features are and you can sort of build your prep around the map that you've got. And, and that's, yeah, it's that, like you say, it's the reverse engineering of it, right? Like build a fantastic location from a battle map that you think looks cool and then describe, you know, describe what's there. Uh, the tricky bit is if you have something very specific in your head and then trying to find a map that fits that exact specific oh, thing. Yeah. And then, Sorry, you're, you're, you know, then yeah. you're not in a you're not in a good you're not in a good spot. Yeah. No. No, because then you're in a world of fonts. And there's no <laughs> escape from that. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yep. Okay, so we've got fantastic locations, we've thought about the characters, we've got the secrets and clues, got a few potential scenes in mind. NPCs. Yep. yep. NPCs, big my one. friend. Outlining the important ones. Big one, yeah? Yeah, so right, and that idea is like, well, which NPCs do you are you you know are big important NPCs? Do you want to pay enough attention to to outline them here, right? What's their name? Uh, give a little mannerism, maybe. I, I'm a big fan of like stealing a character from fiction, um, and then and then applying that template to them, right? So you don't have to you don't really have to think of motivation and mannerisms and appearance and all of that. You know, you could just grab a character from fiction and do it. And then another dirty trick is switch the gender of the character. So, you know, if I say like, oh, I have a bartender. He's just like Al Swearingen in Deadwood, except female, right? And now you got like, the, oh, well, that's interesting, right? And and there's a lot of there's a lot of um, interesting tricks like that. Lately, so lately I've been doing a lot of published adventures and I already have NPCs. Um, but yeah, you know that that idea of sort of having a couple of mannerisms or finding a picture of them. Right, so I've been using a, um, uh, I've been lately doing all of my prep in a in a tool called Notion, uh, which is kind of like uh, OneNote, like Microsoft OneNote, and it allows you to sort of build your own wiki, right? And I build like a a card essentially for every NPC that has a picture of them and those mannerisms and their name and everything like that, and then I can list their association to other characters and then link link to those pages, um, so that when I'm prepping my notes, I can just drop that name of that card in, and I've got all the details already set. Uh, that that has worked really well for me for for outlining NPCs, uh, but sometimes I just I just go with the flow. Like I might not have anything for an NPC, and I'll just like you know however I react is how the NPC reacts, right? Like I don't I don't have to be super detailed in what my NPCs are like ahead of time. It'll come out like you know I'll, I'll, depending on what kind of NPC I think will be interesting for the moment is sort of how the NPC sort of shows up. Um, I think about you know I. I I don't know if this was a poll or a survey that I did, but in talking to a lot of DMs, that DMs tend to improvise about half the NPCs that they create, right? Half of them they actually have ahead of time, and then the other half sort of happens spontaneously. You have a random name generator. You grab a name. You you tie it to the one bandit that survived the fight, and now you've got a new NPC. 
And uh, I, I don't know that you could get away with doing all of them that way, but that, that, that seems to work. And it seems to uh, give, you know, seem, seems to give some freedom for lazy dungeon masters to not spend too much time on building out their NPCs. Uh, but like a lot of things, I think people probably over-engineer their NPCs. You know, you look at like random tables and there's like 36 random tables you can roll on for every little aspect of an NPC. It's like, do you really need that kind of detail? You know, or is it, is it just better to say like, I don't know, it's like the, uh, it's like Dolores Claiborne in the movie Dolores Claiborne, right? Like now I've got everything I need. Only it's a dude, right? And then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when yeah. you're rolling on the, um, my NPC's got a wooden leg. That's cool. Is it the left leg or the right leg? Oh, yeah. move on, move right. on. Right, yeah. yeah, and that's fine. But like, do you need to figure that ahead of time? Or you just go right, you know. <laughs> it kind of, exactly. When it matters, it matters. When it doesn't, it doesn't. Right. That's yeah, cool. yeah. What one of our good friends of the show, Guy Melder, who's got the Burn After Running uh, blog, he's he does that sort of thing with introducing characters as well for one shots. So when you start out, you have to say who your character is and who plays them. So it's like you yeah, know, right. I've, I've got the buddy smug played by Jason Statham or whatever. You know, you just have to come up with an actor. Yeah, but that that sort of like immediately fixes it in people's heads. So yeah, why not do it for the NPCs as well? That's just you know. Yeah, I've heard that. That's actually a trick. I've used it a couple of times, uh, and but I thought that was an interesting trick of like describing, you know, telling the players what the archetype is for the character, right? Mm. And 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 then you know, then they get it. like, oh yeah, of course, I know exactly who this person is, right? Yeah, I mean, I do want to circle around to published adventures in a bit, if that's okay, Mike. Sure, but, yeah. but while we're on the subject of NPCs and published adventures, it's got to be a legal thing. But why on earth adventures don't just say, this dude is like Travis Bickle out of Taxi Driver? Right. It would save pages <laughs> and pages and pages of, uh, you know, Paizo Adventure Paths, for example. Right, right. Um, that's before you get to the stat blocks. Yeah. Just finding out about their lost sibling and where they grew up and <laughs> right. their, their pet dog they lost one yep. summer. Oh, my word. But they don't even tell you what they look like. Right. Ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know why they don't put them in published adventures. It's got to be it's an interesting the, idea. the actor doesn't want to get involved. Yeah. Or, yeah. I mean, there's as, a, as an adventure writer, I'd be pretty apprehensive about putting in because it's mm. it breaks it, – it, like it breaks you – know, an adventurer also needs to be inspiring to the DM and putting a pop pop, pop culture reference in the middle of a fantasy adventure is a pretty mm. big shock to the system. But I don't know. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, I'm have to, I'll have to think back on that. That might, you know, I think for like a looser adventure that I would write, I would certainly do that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I guess you've got to, you got to know the pop culture thing, haven't you? You know, it's a, I think we'll all be all right with everybody in the Magnificent Seven, but after that, all bets are off. Okay. So, NPCs, but then then we get to the meat of the fantasy game. Now we're talking monsters. Monsters, yeah. Seeding monsters. So something that people have been doing since Redbox and, and even before that. Right? Sure, just yeah. Getting some monsters, flicking through monster manuals, thinking up some cool stuff and just dropping them into neat little – into your fantastic locations. Yeah. So I, a lot of times, like all of these – I like to think of all of the eight steps as like eight little dishes full of components that you use to make a meal. Mm-hmm. And you just sort of put them all in their own little dish. And then when you need them, you take them out and you drop them in. So instead of having like an encounter where you're like, in this battle, we're going to have, you know, three ogres and two hobgoblin mages, and they're going to be at this place, right? And I've tuned that exactly so it works that way. Instead, you say, what kind of monsters make sense for this area overall? What kind of monsters do I think might show up? Could be ogres, could be hobgoblin mages. And you just sort of list it. And maybe if you're online, you link to like the D&D Beyond stat block for it. Uh, maybe if you, if you want, you could put a bookmark in your monster manual for the the monsters that you might run, uh, you know, but you just kind of list them out just, just to, in your, in your mind, have an idea of what monsters you're going to whip up given the moment. 
Um, but I'm actually a, I'm a pretty big believer in improvising in improvising combat encounters. That it's except for boss fights. If you take boss fights off the off the list, almost all of the rest of them can work really well from being improvised. And in particular, like you don't know what kind of encounter is going to be the most fun for the situation. Like if you know, if the players and the characters have just been getting their asses kicked for like the two hours, dropping another great big heavy combat encounter on them might not be the thing that they want. Maybe it's a lot more fun to find like that one drunken, you know, one drunken kobold, you know, staggering down the hall. So being able to sort of steer like what kind of encounter you're going to have. Is it, a you know, the, the, the example I bring up, like you, you kick in the door, it could be two drunken hobgoblins playing a dice game, or it could be 17 hobgoblins practicing their defensive phalanx maneuver, right? And, you know, there's going to be a very different fight depending on, you know, the situation. But what has happened previously can change that kind of fight. If they've already been facing off against hard fight after hard fight after hard fight, maybe it's time they to just face a couple of couple of guys so they have a different way to approach the whole thing. Um, I noticed this when I was running uh, Ghost of Saltmarsh recently. Um, it's an old, there's an old classic adventure, uh, The Final Enemy, where you go in and you fight a bunch of Sahuigan in a in their underwater temple place. And that adventure has like, here, you know, here's the group that's in this room. Here's the group that's in this room. And I was like, man, they're just going to fight Sahuigan after Sahuigan after Sahuigan. This like, you know, here's 12 Sahuigan in this room. Here's nine in this. And it's like, it's going to be big battle after big battle after big battle. And how boring is that? And I'm like, A, I can have them move all over the place. So you'll hear Sahuigan moving through the hallways. And then they might go to a room and there's nobody there. Or they might go to a room and there's two. Or they might go in the room and there's a lot. But it... You know, we're oscillating the beats of hard versus easy so that it's not just constant attrition, which can can be really overwhelming. Mm-hmm. So that so that key for the monster section is just to jot down the ideas of the kinds of monsters that might show up in the adventure, not so much to build fully established, you know, combat encounters. Um, except for boss fights. Boss fights is a whole separate thing. There's kind of like a battle order, almost like a menu that you can pick from at the time. So there's going to be some orcs, and then that means there's going to be an orc lieutenant. And there's probably some wolves, and you're doing it from a story perspective of what of what potentials and possibilities are there, rather than in location I there is going to be this, and they are waiting for the door to be opened. Yeah, and you may still do a little of that, right? You may still say like, okay, I know that there's certain guys that are going to be in this room, but I might shrink mm. the amount or I might increase the amount depending on what I want to do. Um, so yeah, it, 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 it gives some flexibility there. And I think, I think that that works. It's a little uncomfortable. Like it's a little, you know, it's one of those areas where you feel like I'd much be rather be happy if I had the one, like the old 3.5 battle page or 4E battle page where it shows me, here's the map, here's the monsters, here's mm. the specific locations they're in, here's their tactics. A lot of people really want that. I just don't think that makes for a particularly interesting or dynamic game. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and it's a lot of prep. Yeah, it's, and it's a lot of prep. A lot of prep. Okay, final step in the eight-step program to successful gaming, or more successful game, is uh, magic item rewards. Yeah. So not applicable to every system, this particular one, I'm guessing, but um, but a big part of your, your, your F20 family of games. Yeah, certainly. But I, I'd be surprised if there were a lot of RPGs that didn't have some kind of meaningful reward, mm-hmm. right? And and really what we're talking about here is like, so specifically for like 5e D&D, uh, and really probably all the additions of DD is that like magic items matter and they matter a lot to the characters, which means they matter a lot to the players. 
And since they matter a lot to the players, just like we focused on the characters in step one, we should also focus on the rewards those characters are going to get in step eight. And it's really easy to just not pay any attention to it all because it doesn't matter that much for a DM. We don't really care mm-hmm. about giving out a magic sword or not. But they do. They really care. So that idea of like, what's an interesting, you know, looking at the characters, what's an interesting item that one of those characters could use? You know, if we have a ranger and the ranger has a crappy bow, wouldn't it be cool if they had a really cool bow? And then you're like, okay, well now look at the locations and the monsters. What if it was a bow that's specifically made by Githyanki to hunt mind flayers? Like, that's kind of cool. And then we drop that in and now our ranger has a bow that had been made by Githyanki to hunt mind flayers. Right. So now we have secrets that we can tie to it and it matters to the character. And yeah, so it's it's always to me, it's always worth spending a little bit of time, even if you say like everybody's cool, nobody needs a magic item. That's fine. You know, check that box, but at least at least have the line there to check. Um, So is it is it crucial? Like maybe not. But is it a good way to bring joy to the game? I think so. Right. Like giving a magic item to a character costs you nothing and you know matters a lot to the player who's playing that character specifically for a mechanics a mechanic focused game like 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 5e D&D, right mm. people are pretty happy when they get a magic item i think in terms of building up a nice tapestry rich tapestry for your story i think that you sort of alluded to it there but i'll i'll highlight it for listeners anyways the idea of building more secrets and that kind of thing so even if it's not a magic item, you might be giving the players some gold pieces or some something, uh, some kind of reward, whatever it might be. But instead of just being like a hundred gold pieces, it could be the silver diadem of Zerex Nab, the Sorcerer King, or whatever. Right. And if you, and then you can backwards fill in bits about that, about the history and how he used to be here and what he did along yep. the way, so that when they get to the end and open the chest and find the corpse or whatever it might be, he's wearing that silver diadem, and then you still give him the. GP reward of whatever you decided it was going to be anyway, but it's in the form of some historical artifact or that's been passed down over the years or buried with this king or whatever it might be, and that just makes it more interesting than saying have X number of coins yeah. of the particular currency the, of this generic game. Generic plus one longsword. Yeah, um, that's that's. I, I kind of have a dirty trick for making fun, lazy magic items that matter too, uh, which isn't in return, but it is in the Lazy DM workbook, um, and. You know, the idea there is like, and they have this in the Dungeon Master's Guide, the fifth edition Dungeon Master's Guide too, where you can, you, you essentially have like a, a, an origin for a weapon, right? Like what, who made this weapon? Uh, and you might have like a characteristic of this weapon. So you might have like the orcish smoking longbow, right? And then what I like to do a lot of times is beyond just giving like a plus one bonus, um, is giving it a single use per day spell effect, right? And the nice thing there is like, we've got, multitude of spells to choose from the mechanics for them have already been worked out and making it a once per day effect isn't going to break the game right so if we have it that like once per day it allows you to cast true strike as a bonus action right well now it's like oh i get advantage with this bow once well it's not you know they're not going to kill every boss they ever face because they have advantage once but they're gonna be like that's cool like i like that that's you know if i have a you know, if you give your fighter a great sword that lets him cast like burning smite once a day, you know, now they've got this one cool, like I'm not a paladin, but I can do this burning smite once because the sword lets me do it. Makes the sword really interesting and rich and it's easy to do. Like it's, it's, it, it takes no time to like go through the spell. You know, once you've got an origin, once you've got a condition and once you've got the item and you know the character and you know the history and you know the other areas to go through and be like, what spell makes sense that this weapon would have. 
Uh, the other trick is a thing called relics. So in 5e, they don't expect that you have a, tr- a big golf bag full of magic items. Um, <laughs> they expect that you, you generally are getting like one per tier, right, on the average. And uh, But you kind of want to give a lot of magic items out because players love them. So why wouldn't you? So one of the things I do is a thing called relics. And a relic is essentially a, 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 a random item. Again, it has that origin to it. So maybe it's an elven tiara and maybe it's a, you know, it has a condition like radiancy. It's an, a radiant elven tiara that can cast a spell once and then it's expended, right? So our characters are fourth level, but they just picked up a, a sapphire ring of the dragonborn that has a blue dragon head on it. And it can cast Chain Lightning once. Well, Chain Lightning is a six-level spell, and they're fourth level, right? So they're many levels away. So they have this really powerful item that's going to you know, tear through a huge amount of monsters. But they can only use it once. So, yeah, will they break the game? Yes, for one battle. And then, and then it's gone, right? And then I don't have to worry about like now tuning every battle because they have this one stupid magic item. It's like they get one shot. But, boy... They like them, and the other thing they do is they they love getting it, and then they hoard them and forget about them. So it doesn't really <laughs> so it doesn't really affect your game anyway. But like I've had some where like I had one where it was a, a a weird item they picked up from a witch or from I think it was a hag that could cast Circle of Death once, right? And and they had this thing, and they were on a ship, and they were like, we I think I might need to use it. They were about to use it against like an enemy they're fighting, and realized they would kill everybody on the ship. Right, that like circle of death's range was as big as the ship, and they're like, you know, we'll get rid of these bad guys and we'll kill all of our crew, and they're like, we need to really think about this because <laughs> you know, would we are we the baddies, right? Like, yeah. So, so they they add like really interesting story elements, and again, super easy to do. You just grab your player's handbook, you look at some spells, you you don't worry about putting a a, a very powerful effect on a on an item because they can only do it one time. Um, and I stole that basically from Numenera. So um, yes. Monty Cook's Monty Cook's Numenera has this idea of ciphers, and ciphers are essentially like powerful items that work once or have one effect on them. And they're, it's a great idea. I love I love Numenera to death, and mm. um, yeah, and it just transports really well. And it's a lazy trick, right? It's like it takes. I have a little online JavaScript generator that makes them for me. And when I'm prepping my game, I hit the generator and I go, "That one looks cool," and I copy it and I paste it in, and I'm done. Right. And then when I give it out, the player's like, oh, you know, like, that's really cool. And you're like, see, <laughs> you know, bringing a little joy to somebody, you know, for eight <laughs> seconds, you know, eight <laughs> seconds of work for free. So, yeah. Uh, the, the other thing to do magic items, potentially, it doesn't involve things giving out less than more. Arguably, but uh, God's Own Game Earth Dawn from the 90s, which you may or may not be aware of, had this thing where um, you got magic items, but the more you learned about them, and if you did deeds to replicate to the original hero, it got more powerful. Yeah. So that's that's another way of, like, instead of having a plus one sword and then they throw that away because they found a plus two sword and stuff sure. like that, yeah. you can just power up the same item by the re- revelation of secrets and going on quests and deeds sure. and finding out who originally made it and going to their forge or whatever it might be. That's that's another way of just like building that tapestry of like the the richness and the secrets and the knowledge and everything that you're building together as a quest. It, it gives that gives them um, like a focus and investment in the magic item that they've got without having to you know trade it in because you've got a new right. better one now. That kind of thing. and it makes sense because like you know Bilbo didn't dump Sting when he found some better sword. <laughs> that's right. right? Yeah. And and yeah, so Explorer's Guide to Wild Mount uh, for Fifth Edition has that idea, and I, I don't remember what they call them, like legacy legacy items or something like that. But they are like upgradable items that have a quest. You go on the quest and you upgrade it, you get a new thing. And I love that idea. I'm I just keep forgetting 
right? It's like <laughs> I got I've got a lot of players with a lot of things going on. And I'll forget. So, like, my wife has a staff that I think was supposed to upgrade, and I forgot. And now she just has the abilities because it's like, I don't remember about a quest. So it can be, it can be. It's actually, it, I'll tell you where that would work really well, and that's one-on-one D and D games. Um, so you know, during COVID, my wife and I were playing a one-on-one D and D game uh, where you have one central character that the story is built around, and they have a sidekick. But like, you can really have like these side quests where the whole game can take a left turn and just go to, I just want, I, I just need to go on this quest so my sword will get upgraded. Right, and then go back to the main game. The, the hard part in a other game is like if you got five or six people, are they all willing to go on these tangent paths in order to complete the quest, or is it just something they're able to do along the way? And in that case, like, did you really need to be a separate thing? But yeah, it, it's a it's a really cool idea. I wish I wish I would do it more. <laughs> but yeah, it works. One thing I've noticed, and now I, I haven't been playing a lot of high level D and I played a couple of games that went pretty high. I had a twentieth level game and a sixteenth level game and stuff like that. But generally speaking, like plus one magic items are just fine. Like not you know, a plus one item with a lot of n- nice lore and everything on it. But like there isn't this need to go to plus two or plus three, right? Like the math is flat enough that having any bonus at all is better than not. And yep. you, there isn't this feeling like, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm 12th level now. My plus one sword sucks. You know, <laughs> in fourth edition, it definitely was like that. In fourth edition, you had an expectation of having magic items that went up to plus six, depending on what level you were. And you were behind the curve if you didn't have it. Like I played in a 4E campaign with a good friend of mine. And I remember being pissed off that he had not given me my, my rogues duly, you know, you know, the rogues do of a plus three dagger when he reached 12th level, because it's like, you know, I'm behind the curve now, right? I'm going to hit less often because you're not giving me the dagger that I should have according to the rules. So <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm glad those days are gone. Those, those were the yellow cards, right? The magic item cards. Yeah, right. So, you know, the detractors right. of 4E would say, that, oh, you've got like 50,000 abilities, which you didn't. You had some at will, some encounters, some dailies. Yeah. But actually they probably had a point with magic items because yeah. you would get out your yellow deck to see what you were going to yeah. do next. They, they, oh, they fixed that with uh, inherent bonuses. Uh, Dark Sun yes. had inherent bonuses, and then that became kind of a core idea. And that was way better, which is like you just got the bonus automatically, and mm. now the item didn't have a bonus, but it also had like a new kicker effect. And that way the item could last forever, right? Like, it, it, you know, as long as you had that kicker effect, you, you were happy. So mm. I think that was a different... But that was also sort of like flattening the math, right? Like... It wasn't flattening math, but it was just saying we're instead of having this like stair step, we're going to just draw a straight line. Like, it don't worry about it. <laughs> feet tax avoidance, right? Feet tax avoidance, exactly. Right. In this case, it was item tax avoidance. Like, oh, I gotta have. Where's my dagger, you jackass? Like, I'm twelfth level. I need a dagger. So. <laughs> Where's my raise? Yeah. Right. <laughs> So that's that wraps up the steps. And there's, I know, Mike, we could talk all night about this. There's loads <laughs> more to it than this, and you know, that's that's probably only half of Return of the Lazy DM. Yeah, so about, about a third, yeah. <laughs> if, yeah, absolutely. And the rest is just is is how to use that and how to play it to your game, and you know, the benefits of taking a walk, yep. and that's your preparation rather than sitting there looking at a blinking cursor on yep. a, a blank word document, you know. And right. it's all good stuff. I'd heartily recommend it. What I wanted to talk about, if it's okay, Mike, is published adventures. Sure. Uh, Gaz, Gaz already mentioned he, he generates most of his own stuff. I'm sure he could talk about that in a sec, but I tend to run published adventures probably more. And when I read Return to Lazy DM, I thought, why aren't published adventures using this format? Mm-hmm. And I know it's supposed to be for your, your home gamer, and, and you can apply it to published adventures that you've got. 
I know that you've you've gone for it yourself with mm-hmm. your Grendel root books yep. that you've mentioned before. Yep. How easy was it to take these techniques and put it into publishable material that another DM can run? Pretty pretty easy. <laughs> like uh so it's it's you know, you can kind of make an outline. There are a couple things you can't do. You can't do the the character part, right? Like mm. the characters are gonna be unique, generally speaking, are gonna be unique for the adventure. Um, so you can't tie in a lot, which means when I put secrets into an adventure, like in, in Runes of the Grendel Root, uh, I wouldn't put in like all 10. I'd put in just the secrets that I, I knew mattered, but I would expect that a DM would add more. I, mm-hmm. I would also say that when running a published adventure, even if it has secrets, and maybe you just copy and paste them, but it's still worth the conscious effort of saying, yeah, it has secrets, but what are my secrets? Like what, you know, when 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 you have your players and, and you as a DM in the adventure, the adventure isn't taking over everything. You know, some secrets might matter to you and then other secrets you might want to want to change. Uh, so it's still worth reviewing the step. You know, I think in every iteration of whether or not it's a homebrew or a published adventure or it's a one shot or it's a continuing thing, like doing the strong start, doing the secrets and clues are always useful to do. Uh, the strong start is also something else. Like runes, I think both in Runes of the Grand Root and in the original Fantastic Adventures, they have strong starts built in. They have this idea of like, what's the first scene that's going to occur for this? And sometimes that can work, but other times it's like, yeah, except a DM might not want to run it that way. And and it's okay. Like, just don't run it with a strong start, right? You can, you know, you, you know what the quest is. You don't have mm. to run it that way. But a lot of times, like that strong start, because many times it's a fight and that's 45 minutes of your game. You know, it's going to be harder to complete the rest of it if if every strong start is 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 run as as they are. Uh, but yeah, I think I think that we use that outline in in both Fantastic Adventures and in Ruins of the Grendel Root, and it, I think it worked. I think it worked well. You know, mm-hmm. I, I think that that it is pretty transferable. And every so often, you run into an adventure where it looks like they have it right. And I'm mm-hmm. not saying they copied it or anything. I think like we're probably reaching the same conclusion from different paths. But it's not uncommon where I will see even like a Watsi published adventure where they're like, here are the five, you know, here are the, the five things the characters can learn in this place. And you're like, great. You know? times. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but, but I'm afraid I think far more often you run into adventures that yeah, don't, don't use that advice. And, yeah. Right. <laughs> yep. Yeah. And here is the before times, 10,000 years before this adventure commences. Yeah. Start reading your backstory. You uh, better start uh, taking notes. Oh, my goodness me. Yeah. I, I think published adventures still have such a way to go. I, they, I really, really they do. do. I've, I've, I've kind of come to the conclusion that that writing the perfect published adventure is an intractable problem. Mm-hmm. That like we've done it for so long. There's so many thousands and thousands of them out there, and yet we haven't yet found the ideal. Means there probably isn't one. You know that that transfer of information. I think some are better than others, and I think there's like clear things that an adventure can do to be more useful and usable to the people that are running it. But like the biggest publisher in the world that's doing this isn't doing them in a way that makes it easy for me to run them. So what does that what does that say, right? Like I'm running Rhyme of the Frostmaiden now, and it's it's a pain in the ass, right? Like it's it's a hard adventure to run. I like it, but I have to do a lot of work. Yeah, and the irony is that these published adventures, uh, I'm, I've made this mistake for decades. You buy them because you're, you're pressed for time. You yeah, that's, get this that's, adventure because right. I don't have time. And then it turns out to take more time than it would be right. if I'd just done what Gaz has done for decades, which is like, get your bullet points on the go and <laughs> right. start playing. And go. Yeah, I don't, I don't think, I don't think published adventures actually save time. Uh, I don't, no, they're, they're not a lazy, see. yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't think, 
I'm trying to think back if there's anywhere or if in the book, if I said like, hey, if you know, if you want to be lazy, run a published adventure. I don't, I, but certainly how I feel now is I don't think they're uh, uh, any easier to run. I do think they offer a lot of interesting material that you can pilfer from. And and I think that they're useful in that regard, like having all of the maps that are in Rime of, uh, Rime of the Frostmaiden and having the general story idea and the NPCs. It's like it takes me time to read and digest and then twist them into the way that I want. But that is a lot of work I didn't have to do. And I recently ran a year-long homebrew Eberron adventure or campaign, right? And then right after ran a published one. And I think I liked the homebrew more – but I did have to do more work session to session. Mm. So like once I've kind of internalized a, a big published adventure like Frost Maiden, I usually have enough to run a session and not worry too much about it, right? Like I, you know, I have a Sunday game and, and I, I ran it yesterday and, and I wasn't too worried about it. Like I knew, A, I'd already run it before, so that certainly helps, right? But, but I knew like what was going to happen. I knew I had the map. I knew what the locations were. I knew where it was going to go. And the adventure kind of gave that to me uh, where otherwise I'd have to sort of make that up. Right. And, and mm. yeah, so I, I think, I think that published adventure, published adventures, pro- depending on the one you're looking at, probably require more upfront work. Uh, but once you've done that upfront work, they're probably easier to run session to session than a homebrew. Uh, but the thing that I go with is like, how much would it cost you to make that adventure yourself, right? How much would you have to pay for the art? How much would you have to pay for the editing and design and layout and, and all of the writing that went into it? You know, more than you would want, right? More than you would do. And, and you're getting that for so cheap compared to how much it costs. Like, I don't know how much Rhyme of the Frostbane cost in production, right? But it wasn't 50 bucks, right? <laughs> and it cost me 50 bucks to get all of that. Right. So like in the same way that like there's no way you could ever build a Big Mac from scratch and not pay like a million bucks. Right. <laughs> I can still go buy a Big Mac for three dollars. Right. So there's an efficiency. There's an interesting to me. There's an interesting efficiency in published material that I think is often sort of tossed aside in the. Uh, yeah, but I want to do it myself, which is also cool. Right. Like I'm not knocking anybody who likes to do it themselves. Um I just don't, you know, like it's going to be real hard to come up with something as good as Midgard, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So. Yeah. For sure. <laughs> right then, gentlemen, this is a bumper episode as it is. I think the time is against us, but uh, it does behave us to ask, uh, Mike, what, what are you working on at the minute? Where can people find your stuff? Where should they go to get more excellent DM advice? Sure. So... Best place to find anything I do is on my website, slyflourish.com. Uh, if you go there, the front page has my favorite articles. It's got the most recent articles. It's got all of the different places you can find all my other stuff, including my YouTube channel, uh, Twitter, uh, my Sly, the Sly Flourish newsletter, which I'd recommend people subscribe to. It's free, and you get the article in your inbox every week. Uh, I have a Discord server where we hang out and chat about lazy DM stuff all the time. So I got a bunch of different things. I have a podcast. I have my own podcast, which is basically the reruns of all the other stuff that are broadcast in the podcast. And uh, so any, any, you know, there's enough of my crap on that page to <laughs> be more than anybody would want, including all the links to all the books that I'm doing. Uh, the thing I'm working on right now, like I said, is the third of the Lazy Dungeon Master books. Like the, the first, so the, to me, the, 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 
the, the two big Lazy DM books are The Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master and The Lazy DM's Workbook. And I'm now working on a book called The Lazy DM's Companion, which is designed to sit at your side while you're preparing your games to help give you guidance and inspiration to make it easier to run your game. So it's a mixture of guidelines to, to hit certain aspects of 5th edition that are a little rough, make them a little easier, and, 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 and help you focus on the story of your game. Uh, and also give you lots and lots and lots of inspiration to help you generate adventure adventure and campaign ideas. So I'm in the middle of working on that now. Uh, I'm hoping to kickstart it later, you know, probably in late summer, early fall, and then the book will probably be out next year. That's the current plan. Amazing stuff. And uh, yes, we highly recommend you head over there and check out uh, all the stuff that's there. There's, there's great great articles and lots of advice and tips and inspiration to be found so let's do that so thanks very much for coming on mike i'm sure we could talk easily for another couple of hours <laughs> yep without worrying about it so maybe maybe once you've got your new book written we'll let you back on and have a chat yeah that'd about be great that then. yeah that'd be awesome thanks ever so much mike really appreciate your time yeah i do too this has been a great been a great time i appreciate being on the show